0: talk, talking crime, cases, and backing the blue. Now, here are your hosts,
1: Ed Mamet and Kevin Schroeder.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cop Talk. My name is Kevin Schroeder, retired NYPD detective, and I'm here with my co-host, Captain Ed Mamet.
2: Good afternoon, listeners. This is uh, retired Captain Ed Mamet,
0: and we have a distinguished
2: guest on the line.
0: Today's guest is the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and his name is John Letney. Hello, John. Welcome to the show.
1: Hello, everyone, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: So, John, uh, as we speak, you're the chief of police of Thomasville, correct?
1: Thomasville, Georgia. That's correct.
0: Thomasville, Georgia. Okay. And you started out actually in Rochester, New York, correct?
1: I did. I worked for the Monroe County Sheriff's Office in Rochester, New York for about 20, almost 25 years.
0: Okay, so if you could just bring me uh, to your career starting out in Rochester to where you are today in Georgia.
1: Well, I started out there as a part-time deputy working in uh, in the Parks Unit, and from there got hired full-time, and after another academy, um, ended up working patrol, uh, investigations, uh, training. Uh, moved up through the ranks. I was a motorcycle cop for a while, one of my favorite jobs uh, as well, and uh, worked in administration, accreditation. Uh, I was a SWAT commander uh, for a number of years, and uh, and then uh, after about twenty. years, uh, we decided to move south. So I retired and moved to uh, North Carolina, where I served as chief for the Southern Pines Police Department for about Seven and a half years and then I served as chief for the Apex Police Department, a suburb of Raleigh uh, for about another eight years retired again and uh, about almost three years ago we moved to Thomasville, Georgia and uh, I've been the, been the chief here. So parallel with that uh, I got involved in not only the state Chiefs associations but also the international Association of Chiefs of Police and worked uh, on some committees and uh, some projects and things and ended up running for uh, elected office. Uh, Uh, Back in 2018, uh, elected fourth vice president and the way the system works, you, you move up every year as long as you're still eligible. And I uh, was honored to be sworn in uh, as president of the ICP at our annual conference last October.
0: Now, how long of his run is it? Is it a two-year term, four-year term, being the president? It's
1: a, it's a one-year term, and then another year as immediate past president. But the, the structure is actually v- is very good, because when you, when you get elected as fourth vice president, well, you've got four years of a, basically an internal training program. Each of the vice presidents has a different role and responsibility. So by the time uh, you uh, assume the role of president— You've really got a good understanding of, of the complex organization an IACP is, but more importantly, the complex issues that face the law enforcement profession around the world. And so it's, uh, you know, each of those years has, uh, has kind of a different different focus. And then uh, as president, I get to represent the organization and, and uh, look for, uh, for ways to steer IACP into shaping the future of the policing profession, which is our, uh, our uh, vision for uh, the association.
0: John, how many uh, police officers do you have in uh, Thomasville right now?
1: So right now, I have a staff of uh, 80 positions. And like most other agencies in the country, I'm not full. So if there's anyone who wants to move to Thomasville, Georgia and uh, apply to be a police officer, it's a great community to serve. But uh, I've seen that uh, issue in in larger departments and small. So I've worked everything from over 1,000 to uh, right now, I'm uh, I'm, uh, right about 80. So
0: in regards to the IACP, which you're the president of, can you give uh, our listeners a background and history of the IACP?
1: Yeah, so the IACP uh, was formed in 1893 when a bunch of forward-thinking chiefs got together and um, were kind of brainstorming ways where they could work together, they could learn from each other, they could collaborate on best practices, uh, and they formed an association. Um, shortly thereafter, there were a few uh, chiefs from uh, from Canada that saw the value, joined the association. And so um, that was the start of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And uh, we have grown and progressed ever since. Uh, We now have over 33,000 members in 170 countries around the globe. We work on a lot of issues collaboratively, not only here in the U.S., which is where the bulk of our members are, but Providing support, uh, technical assistance, training, uh, uh, advocacy, uh, whatever we can to support law enforcement uh, around around the globe, and that can be everything from administrative studies to assessments uh, uh, to training on a variety of topics. Uh, we're in a, a number of countries right now doing a, a training program on roadway safety and helping those nations increase uh, the the safety on the roadways. Um, we do other other trainings uh, on leadership on community policing, uh, uh, you you name the topic. Um, We have some pretty well-regarded programs for leadership, uh, first-line supervision, leadership in police organizations. We have a Women's Leadership Institute, which is very well done. Uh, to encourage uh, our uh, up-and-coming female leaders. So uh, that's just a smattering of the many offerings that uh, the IACP has.
0: So you get to travel around the world and talk with other police departments throughout the world, basically.
1: I, I do, and it's uh, it's a great opportunity. It is um, it is somewhat exhausting. <laughs> I have learned that yes. jet lag is cumulative, uh, but to see and, and meet with and hear uh, officers and, and supervisors and command staff and superintendents and so on, from agencies around the world, as well as our aligned partners. So Interpol, uh, Europol, Maripol, Asianapol, there's a bunch of others where we can work together to enhance uh, public safety on such a wide uh, uh, the scope and spectrum and you know every every agency every every nation does something unique and very very well in law enforcement and, and we are the one global organization that can um, cross-pollinate those ideas and bring them around to other places and and you know we know where the gaps are we know where the problems are because our members come to us and say we need help in this topic area well we probably have an expert somewhere in the world that can help with that problem and to, and to match those up as a, as a great opportunity. And I, I, I find also in a, in a, in a pretty, you know, kind of basic way, Police officers and and what we do in law enforcement is is the same around the world. Uh, it, it's it's folks who are committed to serving their community, to understanding their culture, to making a difference in in, in public safety, serving their community. And uh, and you know, so I say cops are cops, and they, we all get along, and it is that big happy family. Um, really beyond the borders of uh, our, our agency, our state—you uh, know, even the U.S.
0: You know, John, what what are the biggest challenges facing law enforcement today uh, that you see?
1: Well, there are there are many. Um, recruitment and retention is probably the number one thing I hear about in most countries. Not every in in some countries they have a pipeline from uh, their military or college system uh, or, or other ways. And uh, but generally around the world, and certainly here in the U.S. and and uh, North America recruitment and retention is probably the the number one issue I'm hearing, um, and, and from that flows the ability to provide service because you know this is a this is a face to face person to person engagement occupation. While technology is important, it's never going to replace that cop on the beat, you know that 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 officer who is in the neighborhoods, in the business districts, uh, in the schools, and so on. Um, I, we hear a lot about trust building, and uh, so IACP has a trust building campaign that um, we're encouraging agencies to, uh, uh, to sign up and be a part of and, and enhance trust in their communities. Um, technology is, uh, is something we hear about a lot, and, and not only the advancement, but the volume, the cost involved. The, you know There's so much coming down the pipe, what's the best practice uh, uh, sort of thing. And then, you know, we we deal with with the crimes and and the issues that face our society. So from a crime perspective, gun crime is is on the rise. Um, Assaults, violent behavior, uh, disrespect for the rule of law all of that and then you know the the mental health issue is one that has uh, i think gotten uh, more time involved from law enforcement over you know the past several decades and and so you know there's a lot to unpack in all of this but you know from a you know a 30,000 foot level those are kind of the, the big topics i hear as i travel around
2: yeah john you know uh, before we get any further i'd like to say that i have been a member of the ICP for over 40 years to the point uh, that now i am a retired member a lifetime member i don't have to pay dues anymore more, which is great. Oh,
1: that's wonderful. And uh, <laughs> of course, we thank you for your membership. It's, it's important because the advocacy weight of the IACP is our members. It's those people like yourselves that are still involved, even though you're retired, but the the depth and breadth of knowledge that you have from serving for decades is something now that's still valuable to the IACP. Because just like I was saying, we cross-pollinate those experts uh, with, with the, the gaps or the needs. Um, that's not just in service, folks. I mean, it is to some extent. But we, we have a lot of SMEs who are retired cops uh, that, that we can plug into certain things, and, uh, and it really helps in carrying out the mission.
2: Yeah, and I still uh, I get the magazine, and getting to the magazine, in December of 2022, you wrote about recruitment uh, as a significant problem. And what I just found out from reading that article that it's a wor- and hearing you, that it's a worldwide problem. I thought that the problem of recruitment was limited to the United States. I didn't realize it's worldwide. And a lot of it has occurred here in the states since the George Floyd uh, um, incident. But uh, worldwide, that's that's new to me. How did that come about?
1: Well, it it, it it there's a variety of reasons, and it's it's different in different parts of the world. But you know, some police leaders believe it's generational, in that um, mm-hmm. the the generation that that taught us, you know, the uh, the baby boomers, the war generation, the depression. Uh, um, folks who who lived through that that uh, time in our in our history, you know, the world was different when when I uh, got hired. Matter of fact, I, I remember taking a civil service test in in New York, uh, and there were three thousand applicants show up to take this test, and there were fifteen jobs available. That's it, and I'm thinking, wow, this is this is a pretty competitive process. And and back then, it took you a year or two to get hired, but we were committed to doing the job. Uh, and giving back and serving, um, and and now there there still are those people. Um, there's a lot of very committed people that are that are you know wanting to serve, um, but there's also a lot of other jobs out there that they can uh, they can do and they can serve in different ways, and not have the things that we had to face: the nights, the shifts, the weekends, the missing holidays, the the, the, the lack of family time, and. You know, work-life balance is a, is a much bigger issue in society, uh, you know, in, in, in this century than it was in the last century. So well, th- there's a lot are surrounding uh, all of that. And, and frankly, with the lack of respect for the rule of law and, and, and for law enforcement, it just turns a lot of people away from, uh, from what is a very rewarding career.
2: Well, what disturbs, uh, what disturbs my former colleagues uh, and myself is the fact that the standards are being lowered to get people, and that's very dangerous. How do you feel about that one?
1: It is it is very dangerous. And while I, I hope that's not the case, uh anecdotally I, I have heard that standards are changing. Uh, I have told my staff regularly, I will go with a position unfilled before I put the wrong person wearing a badge, carrying a weapon, representing our department and our profession that doesn't belong there. Uh, I I don't need to solve a temporary short-term problem of vacancies with a long-term problem of the wrong person serving my community. Um, I, I owe that to my cops too. They need to work with good qualified people that have the same mindset and are going to serve with the same sense of of ethics and dignity and and respect for everyone um, and not put the officers in a a bad position. So we need standards. We need to hold people accountable to standards. And maybe we just need to do a better job in recruiting and and attracting people to this very rewarding profession that meet the standards that our profession demands and our communities deserve and expect.
2: Well, that's a big problem. Now, these problems that we have been discussing, how does it affect, in your opinion, in society in general?
1: Well, I, I think, it, as I said, it's foundational um, because we serve people. Um, primarily one-on-one, face-to-face human interactions between a police officer and a citizen. And that may be a victim. It may be a motorist. It may be a child at a school. It may be just interacting in a park or on a nice day walking uh, through our neighborhoods. And so you've got to have the right personality, the right mindset, the right temperament to deal with all those things that we deal with in law enforcement. And when you don't, now you've got someone who is not serving with the integrity, the ethics um, that that service mindset that, that we need. And like in any profession, there are people that don't belong. There are our cops that don't rise to the expectation. And so we, we have to have a system to root them out. Um, every barrel has bad apples, but... It's, it's it's a small percentage of the good cops that are out there day in and day out sacrificing of themselves to serve. So we don't need to bring into our profession any bad apples. And when we can, through good backgrounds, through good standards, through good hiring and training practices, when we can root them out early on, now we have a better organization uh, and we serve our community better. Um, we investigate crime better. We prevent crime better. We do all those things that law enforcement can do to be a positive force in their
2: communities. On, on another topic, uh, the IACP uh, has called on Congress to promote recruitment and retention, and uh, I, th- I think you mentioned in your article about the Law Enforcement Administration, Law Enforcement Administration, getting involved. Now, I recall many years ago the Law Enforcement Administration it was called the LEAA, and they had a program called LEAP. L-E-E-P-E meant Law Enforcement Education Program. I participated in that, and for 16 years I went to college. It was paid for through that program, and I was a, I obtained three degrees. Went so up to master's degree. So what you're promoting is... Would you say is a throwback to the old leap and LEAA?
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it, and uh, so I, I I missed that program only by uh, by a year or so. So so uh, good for you that you were able to take advantage of it. And congratulations on that. But you know that that's the seed money. You still have to do the work, and I, and I'm sure 16 years of college while you're working full time and family and all those other issues was a challenge. But it, it, it's so valuable. Um, and and it ended back in probably, I think late 70s or so. Um, and that is one of the things that. success so back in that in that time frame um, we were trying to professionalize law enforcement and education was seen as a way to do it Matter of fact there were several agencies that that had a a minimum standard that you had to have a college degree and there aren't as many of those anymore um, but those with college degrees tend to get more preference or they get uh, a hiring bonus or something like that so if that were were funded uh, and advertised um, and more people took advantage of it well now we've got a ready pool of hopefully college-educated young men and women who who've learned about how to serve, and uh, and that's something that really has to be nationwide. It can't be department by department or even you know state by state to be as effective as it needs to be across the country.
2: Uh, you know, you mentioned the um, college. For years, New York had a two-year requirement. Uh, started with uh, former police commissioner Raymond Kelly. Now there's talk about doing away with that to get more people. So it's a backward step if it happens. And that's also very disturbing.
1: Yeah, it. it so every department has to determine um, what they need. However, in my experience, I've found that college-educated uh, folks have a better understanding of the application of law, um, of uh, discretion of how to solve a problem how to communicate um, rather than just enforcing the law, and if you look statistically, uh, law enforcement agencies generally, if you look at their total calls for service, probably ten percent or less are related to criminal activity. Now, in in the big cities like New York, it may it may be different, but you know, in general, that's that's a pretty standard number. So, what are they, what are we doing the other ninety percent of the time? Well, we're doing quality of life stuff. We're doing we're doing traffic. We're dealing with mental health crisis. We're dealing with with poverty and homelessness and other social ills. And an officer who has some life experience, uh, some training, some education will understand that better and be able to think through and apply whatever resource that community has to solve the problem rather than just look at, is there a law being broken? If yes, then I do this.
0: John, unfortunately, in New York and other cities, top have a growing power. One of our city council members actually gives out material encouraging kids to fear and distrust the cops. Okay? I mean, it's ridiculous. And with that said, How does law enforcement officers, their families, and supporters push back against this type of propaganda?
1: Well, you know, the negative narrative is pretty widespread. And again, that's just not in the United States either. It's in other countries as well. So um, the best way that we've seen to counteract that, and and I see some real success in this, is is looking at that as maybe an overall negative narrative, but it's not specific to a particular community. You know, it may be an incident. It may be, you know, something— inappropriate or tragic has happened. But when you've got someone in an elected representative role who's, who is, is talking about those things, I think the average person are going to look, and yeah, they may hear that, but they're going to like, well, you know, I know the cop on my beat. You know, I, I know the officer that, that patrols my neighborhood or, or my business area, and he or she is a nice guy. That doesn't represent them. And so the agencies that, that I talk to, you know, they're concerned about the, the negative uh, um, uh, narrative as well. But they also, in the same time, say, but that's not how our community feels about us because it's about relationship. And when you have a good relationship, when you have trust, I go back to our trust-building campaign. Then people will hear the the, the negativity, but they're they're going to hopefully say that's not my agency and my community uh, because I know my local officers. One of the best ways, I think, certainly with kids uh, to establish really good relationships uh, and counteract some of that negativity, be it in the media or in their neighborhood or home, is the school resource officer program. SROs around the country are building positive relationships with kids. And it's not about uh, crime and law enforcement per se. It's, it's protection. It's public safety. Absolutely. But what do these SROs do on a day in a day out? basis. They're, they're not locking up kids. That's not what is what's happening. And the naysayers will tell you it is. Um, but what they're doing is they're building relationships. They're coaching. They're mentoring. They're helping with family problems. Um, it, it, why is the kid tardy? Is, is there a problem at home? How can we help them? How can we get services? You know, they're teaching and they're they're doing such good work and they're counteracting that negative message and sometimes it has to be one kid at a time. And so the SRO program is one of the most valuable ways I've seen to engage youth, Um, and that's also recruiting. I mean, I know several cops today who are police officers because the role model of their SRO Back when they were in elementary school, so it, it is important. It does carry on, and it does help.
0: I agree, John. I believe that there's many pro-police law enforcement people out there. Unfortunately, we don't hear about them or read about it. It's the press they control. You know what you read and hear. John, the uh, IACP is very involved in keeping law enforcement informed about rapidly advancing technology. In your April issue, Police Chief Magazine was devoted to data driving policies. Can you elaborate?
1: Yeah, so technology is uh, is a game changer. Um, I, we all go back to the days where we, we didn't have computers, uh, let alone having them in the car. The information that an officer has available now to him or her uh, makes uh, their job much more efficient, but also makes it safer. And that's critically important. The analysis around crime trends, traffic trends, uh, wrecks, that kind of thing, uh, when we do some really good analysis, we can uh, deploy our limited Resources in ways that are going to be most effective, um, and, but there is so much technology out there. Not every department has the ability to to do the analysis or have a real time crime center or, or those kind of things. But where they do, it really makes a, a huge difference in how effective and efficient uh, our officers can be, and it, um, it it helps them validate things like you know warrants and and driver's licenses and things along those lines. And it makes it better for the community because the the interaction is is much more accurate. It's much more efficient. Uh, and it's backed up by by all this uh, all this data. Um, and there's several emerging technologies, uh, um, even things like like uh, unmanned uh, unmanned aerial uh, systems, where most agencies can't afford a helicopter and probably don't need, but most agencies can afford a small UAS that helps them with everything from large events, you know, festivals and things like that, um, to uh, mapping crime scenes and, and mapping serious accidents. And it can be done uh, through one of these systems in a matter of you know forty five. Five minutes or so rather than the hours and hours and hours that it would take to do by hand and when you're talking about a major wreck scene if you've got an expressway system or a major roadway closed for four hours while you're doing your your uh, um, wreck investigation that's a significant community issue uh, for traffic flow and so on where if you can do it in half an hour uh, by using technology, it's it's so much better. Aside from the fact of sharing information where we can share information, not only from agency to agency uh, in an area, but across state lines, across country lines, helps with overall Homeland Security preparedness, terrorism prevention, y- you name it. And um, as new things come out, there are some really smart people that are always working to make it better uh, and, and enhance it and um, you know give us more capabilities. The, the problem does come with, with budget, though, because these things are expensive, these, these records management systems and, uh, and, and other, uh, other types of technology. So agencies got a budget for it and, and hopefully have support of their elected body to uh, be able to uh, access the technology, be it hardware or software.
0: Thank you, John. Do you have anything coming up, any conventions coming up you'd like to talk about or any fundraising you'd like to uh, have our audience hear about?
1: Yeah, we, we do, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, and on the technology, to stick with that, the uh, so ICP has several committees and sections that are specific to technology-related issues, so uh, uh, cybercrime, computer crime, and digital evidence, uh, all kinds of things along those, uh, those areas as well. We have what we call a law enforcement information technology section, and they are having their mid-year. Conference it will be in May. Information is on our website, so it is coming up. Um, there'll be probably a thousand or or more technology professionals there, police officers, vendors, so on and so forth. It's a great one-stop shop for learning about application of technology and then you know ways to enhance your operation. Later on in the summer, we have a, a impaired driving and traffic safety conference that I believe is in August. Again, oh, probably upwards of a thousand folks uh, from all over the world at, at these conferences. Um, that will uh, focus on uh, things related to impaired driving and traffic safety, obviously. So uh, drug recognition experts, that's a big part of their annual training, Uh, DUI enforcement, traffic safety equipment, and and so on. And then uh, our largest conference, our annual conference and exposition, will be uh, in October in San Diego. Um, We're expecting upwards of 18,000 people uh, at this conference San Diego is always one of our best events, symposiums, training sessions, uh, um, general sessions. We get leaders from all over the world in law enforcement to come together to talk about issues, to explore leading practices, to train and network and, and all of those things. So, um so those, those are some of the biggest um, conferences that we have going on. There's some smaller regional ones. And, and again, our website, uh, the icp.org has got all of this information and much more on top of that.
0: Thank you, John. Captain?
2: Um, we're g- going to be down at National Police Week in about 10 days in, in Washington. Will you be there?
1: I will be there. A matter of fact, um, uh, for the first time, I'm uh, in this department, uh, I'm bringing uh, several of my staff there. And, and I've done this with every department I've been in. Um, I, I encourage every police officer It's some point in time in their career to visit the Law Enforcement Officers Memorial to attend National Police Week to honor the service and sacrifice of uh, those who have uh, have fallen uh, and, uh, and the families that they represent. Uh, so I've been I've been several times. Uh, I have friends on that wall. Uh, I have family members um, that uh, I still keep in touch with, um, and and just to, to honor uh, honor that service is, is critically important. Uh, this year, I've been asked to read some of the names. Um, during the candlelight vigil on Saturday, May 13th. And I'm, I'm honored to be able to, uh, to do that as well as attend the other events that will be going on during National Police Week.
0: Well, hopefully we can meet up then.
1: That would be wonderful.
0: Yes, John, we look forward to seeing you down there in D.C. for Police Week. President John Letney, International Association of Chiefs of Police. I want to thank you for being on Cop Talk.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation.
0: Thank you. Everyone, you've been listening to another episode of Cop Talk. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. And to all our boys and girls out there in blue, stay safe till next time